Ozcert would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we record this podcast. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging, and any First Nations people listening today. We also want to acknowledge that these lands have always been places of learning and sharing of information, and that is the essence of this podcast. Welcome to the Ulster Podcast. Share today, save tomorrow. I'm your host, Anthony Caruana, and for this episode, I'm joined by Eric Pinkerton, a man who says he is a connoisseur of chaos and a fireman of dumpsters. Eric and I chat about how whether the pandemic has some lessons for us to learn about how to change people's behaviour when it comes to cybersecurity. Then it's over to my co-host, Beck, who chats with Mark Carey-Smith about the importance of how we communicate and what we can expect as this year's conference gets ever closer. Welcome, Eric. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. We were just chatting and you've started with this idea that what could we learn from the COVID pandemic and the way people behave that we could potentially apply inside cyber? You've been down this rabbit hole now for a while and researched this and, you know, found some fairly interesting bits of information and learned a lot about how this works. Can you just share with us what is it that we can learn for cyber that's come from this pandemic? Yeah, so so the initial idea I had was if we're if this big part of COVID is influencing the community to, to behave in certain ways, and a big part of InfoSec is in, you know trying to change community behaviours, what can we learn? And I set out confident that I was going to learn all these things and find all these interesting analogies and take away all these really sort of interesting, useful tools and techniques. And what I found was very different to what I set out to find. And the conclusion I came to is there's probably not that much we can take and reuse, but it's still a sort of fascinating journey that I went on. So if there was nothing direct that we could take from the pandemic, and I, you know, I've heard the pandemic described as the world's biggest you know, experiment in agile, you know, yeah. in the, the ability to convert or change things very, very quickly. And I think Satya Nadala from Microsoft said it's, you know, three years of digital transformation in three months. And, all you know, we had all these kinds of things go on. With that rapid transition and that we had all these changes in behavior, what was it that kind of, there must have been something that you could pick out of that that made sense and you could say, hang on, I think that makes sense in the cyber world. Yeah. So, so, I mean, there's lots of things that are really easy to pick up and, and drop into cyber. So the classic thing is, the amount of cycles that we burned looking at attribution at the beginning of the pandemic. We, like, I read meters of journalism about, was it from China? Was it from a mink farm in, you know, Denmark? Was it, there's all these different theories. And we talked about it and we obsessed about it. And the fact of the matter is, it didn't matter where it came from. For the common man, it didn't matter where it came from. There were a small quorum of people who scientists who did need to know where it came from but they were a very small niche amount of people and if you look at that for us in cyber we burn a lot of cycles worrying about attribution and where something came from and whether it was the fancy bear or whether it was the slothful squirrel or, or whatever and for the common man it doesn't matter there's there's no difference in the way we respond to something whether it's a russian or a north korean gang we still re- need to respond and, and, you know, so, so there, the, those direct co- correlations. Some of the other stuff was a little bit more sort of tangential. So influencing large communities of people, you find that there's this 80% of people who will do what they're told because they're told to, it's the right thing to do. And then you have this 20% of people 
who won't do what they're told and sort of trying to break that down into how do we get the people who won't do what they're told to do what we tell them to do. In, in cybersecurity, we try to do defense in depth, right? So, so we have this idea that, you, you, you know, if one control or someone fails to do one thing, there's something else to catch them. And if you try and apply that to COVID, you think about, well, we had social distancing, we had hand sanitizing, we had mask wearing, we had vaccines. So, so we're hitting the problem from every angle we can. And in cybersecurity, you go, well, defense in depth is, you know, it's this iterative, you know, the sum of all its parts means that we end up with a, a you know, a reasonable level of security. But with COVID, you start to realize that the same people who aren't interested in wearing masks are often the same people who aren't interested in getting vaccinated and the same people who are unlikely to go and get tested and the same people who are unlikely to isolate if they think they've got and so on. So all of a sudden, you're, you realize that's not really defense in depth. It's, this, it's just this broad brush, iterative, throw something at the wall and hope it sticks approach. Which, and it's very diff- difficult to try and set up that linear path of cumulative defense does that make sense it does make sense so when you talk about that that group and whether it's 20 percent or 10 percent or 50 percent who really knows because non-compliance is pretty hard to measure yep. objectively yeah. anyway yeah but if we talk about the the non-compliant group of people in the pandemic i mean they're not all non-compliant for the same reasons are yeah. they yeah, so, so i mean does does do the reasons matter? And what might be those reasons? Yeah. So if you want to try to get those people over the line, you need to understand why they're not compliant. Now, some of those people are, are simply not compliant because they're misinformed. And the answer for that is, is, is to, to inform them. Now, some of those people are receptive to information. Other people will push back and assume that, you know, that, you know I don't trust what you're telling me. Right. So we saw a lot of that sort of fake news thing play out. Then there's people who are, who are you know, cannot be moved they're just ignorant there so just to go back are the people that can't be moved in cyber the ones that have max and think that they're you know impregnable (laughs) to all to all cyber attacks is that thinking i'm thinking more along the lines of you know these can you stop using the same password for everything they're not going to do that no matter how many times you ask them to do it because it's just painful right so how do you get people to you know i I think that as a, a good example right is I think cybersecurity is 100% a human problem, right? There's lots of people say, well, it's part human, it's process, it's technology. But every hack, every breach, every vulnerability, every exploit, you can trace it back to a human at some point, either cutting a corner or making a mistake. And it's only when you get into the real pointy-headed, you know, row hammer start exploiting physics level exploits, which are anomalous, that you could sort of say that this isn't a human error. But everything else is... You know, it might be someone making hardware, it might be someone writing software, it might be someone implementing, configuring, running, feeding, watering, managing. If a human makes a mistake, forgets to patch something, forgets to change your default credentials, then that's your vulnerability. So when we talk about that, and you're talking about um, human-introduced vulnerabilities or problems... Yeah. And then we start to trace that. Is that what gets us back into the rabbit hole of attribution because we want someone to blame? Well, the point I'm sort of going for is that is that the mistake people often make in cybersecurity is they is that they finally arrive at the realization they have the epiphany it's a people problem, not a technology problem. So after a few years in this industry, you, you start to realize okay, it's the problem is is not te- the technology is fine. It's the people who are configuring or building or coding the technology. 
Then the, the next leap they make is if the humans are the problem, we can fix that by educating the humans. And that's a mistake. And, and the reason that's a mistake is that 80% of people will do the right thing, 20% of people won't. So you have to use technology to force the people into doing the right thing. So if you choose a password that's rubbish, the technology can push back and say, I want you to choose a longer password. That's very easy. Um, if you want someone not to use the same password that they've used for their Gmail account, that's much more tricky with. And there are things you can do now with APIs into have I been pwned and so on. So you can get, you know, you can make these games. But there's, there's always an element that you rely on telling people to do the right thing and trying to, you know, all of these soft awareness training, gentle nudges, slaps on the wrist, carrot and sticks to, to, to do that little small component that's left that you can't do with technology. But for the most part, technology is the answer. And I see companies putting massive investments into things like phishing awareness training, and they haven't got MFA, right? It's like, why are you wasting money training people not to click on links? That money would be better spent on MFA and on your Office 365 and so on. Mm. So that's where, I, or where my thinking is. So when you start to talk about that human issue and I mean, when you start talking about, for example, the introduction of vulnerabilities, that's almost always, and with a, there are some exceptions, but that's almost always human error. Like, that's not intentional doing bad stuff, notwithstanding yeah. occasionally you get, you get someone who's a bad actor who intentionally does something so that they can access a system yeah. in, a, in a way that's, you know, unexpected. Yeah. But when you start to talk about, there's another element to that because there's people out there that, you know, want to do bad stuff. Now, we call them yeah. threat actors. Yeah. You yeah. know, what about those people? Where do they kind of yeah. fit into so, this model? So a few years back, I, I created this triangle and it was my alternative to sort of a CIA triad and I called it PayPal Foo. People are evil, P-A-E. P-A-L, people are lazy. P-F-U, people make mistakes. And the idea was that 80% of the problems were actually in this, on your payroll, people are lazy, people make mistakes, and 20% of cybersecurity was people are evil, right? So you've got these Russian hackers, you've got Chinese APTs, you've got these Western uh, African crime gangs. They're the evil people. But they're largely benign unless you have someone on your payroll who is taking shortcuts, and, and not, not literally because they're lazy or they're error-prone, but maybe they're under... Uh, motivated, they're understaffed, they're overworked, they're not well trained for that job. You know, all easy mistakes that you can make because this a lot of this stuff is quite hard, um, and you can't influence the attackers. You can't influence the the evil people, but you can influence and you can start to bite into the idea that those people that you have domain over, you can change their behaviour. And a lot of the products out there are like, oh, let's stop the evil. Or a lot of the rhetoric in the industry was, let's stop the evil people. Let's let's stop the bad guys. And in fact, if you reframe it and say, well, what can we do to help the good guys be better at being good or help the people that we control and that we can influence, then you can make a much bigger purchase in the problem. So if we're flipping that, and we've used the 80-20... Um, yeah, I, I, I lean on it because it's And I was going to say, right? it's a... Yeah. We, we should just say for the listeners, this is a very unscientific application of 80-20. It's, it's basically yeah, yeah, saying majority, the, yeah, minority. Yeah, yeah. But the challenge is, of course, that the activity of the minority can have a very big impact on the outcomes for the majority. Yeah. So, and that's so, the asymmetric element of, yeah, of cyber. So, so COVID, right? If 80% of people do the right thing, but 20% of people don't do the right thing, it becomes futile. 
Right. So, so the, the, remember the ratio around the number of people who needed to get vaccinated before we could come out of lockdown. And that number was hotly debated. The government came out and said 80%. And you knew damn well, they were saying we're, we're following the health advice, but you knew damn well the health advice was higher than 80%. But it was a compromise between what they thought was pragmatic and what the people would swallow. So they came up with the 80%, which was based on the Pareto principle. Well, right? that was also why one of the vaccines required two jabs, or all the, all the vaccines required two jabs, but one of them actually required three, but the government didn't think there was an appetite for people to go back for a third one. So they called the third one the booster yeah, yeah. to give and it a different like, name. We actually can be clever about how we present ideas yeah. so that people do, if they're non-compliant with... For, with three jabs, for example, or if we're talking about um, end-user computing, yeah. if they're non-compliant because they've got a perception that end, that um, endpoint protection software makes their computer slower, so they disable it or take it out or do something with it, yeah. we give them an incentive or we reframe the question. I think that's what you're really saying is instead of saying yeah, that's, that the bad guys are the if problem... If you give someone saying, the choice between the secure way... Uh, and the non-secure way, and the non-secure way is the easy way, they're going to take that, right? Mm. So you have to make the secure way the easy way. Yeah. Uh, and that that's the way to think about it. You, you steer them with the side of your foot the way, you make them make the choices you want them to make. And there's a bunch of different levers you can pull. Um, MailChimp used to do this thing where they gave you money, they gave you a discount on your services if you enabled MFA. They've taken that away now because they just enabled it. You know, we've reached a point in in our lives now where companies can get away with just enabling MFA by default, which is a mm. fantastic thing. But there, you know, there are all sorts of interesting incentives you can use to get people mm. over the line. Yeah. So interestingly, when you start to talk about your, your triangle with the PFU corner where people make mistakes and the PAL corner, yeah. um, when you start to talk about those things, what we're really talking about is using technology, or one of the things we're talking about is using technology to reduce the opportunity for those things to happen. So reduce yeah, yeah, the opportunity yeah. for lazy behavior, for example, by making the good choice the easy choice. Yeah. So let them be lazy, yeah. to use that word, but, or let them be more personally efficient, is what, yeah. how some of them might see yeah. it, but give them the tools so that that is the better option rather yeah. than make life harder. Yeah. So this is one of the arguments against, again, around MFA, for example, is that MFA makes people do one more step to yeah, log in. So yeah, you've got to find a yeah, way to integrate yeah, that and make yeah. it better. Is that that's so, the so, so, I mean, the, the laziness is similar to somebody who doesn't have enough time to do something, right? They're rushed, they're stressed, they make mistakes as a result of that. If you can use technology to automate things to help them, you end up with a better security outcome just, just by consequence of the fact you're making that their job easier. So, And I guess then when you start to talk about the proportion of the minority of your the, the so-called 20 percent there's a proportion of those people that just you know want to watch the world burn they just yeah. want to do bad stuff and that's the yeah. criminal element i guess that you're talking about that's the outside and yeah. they get yeah. um a disproportionate amount of attention and as a result of that attention they have disproportionate influence is that is that one of the things that you've observed through that it, the, the funny thing is 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 you know, when you start to look at this population and, and with the research I did, you find there is this small amount of people who are pure chaotic evil. Now, the funny thing is, is a lot of the criminals out there, they don't fall into that bucket. If you go and talk to a lot of the ransomware affiliates, they're just trying to feed their family. They're not that dissimilar to you and I. A lot of the ransomware thing that's happened in Eastern Europe is a consequence of a real push for STEM education 
going back 20 years, and all these very well-qualified, technically adept people arrived at a job market fully skilled, and there was no jobs for them. So now they had to feed their family. They had these skills, and some of them went into sort of illicit ways to make that money. And because of the political situation, the you know, that's almost like the biochemist that runs the drug lab. Yeah, it's it's very similar, right? And and the the Kremlin decided to turn a blind eye as long as they were, you know, inside the tent pissing out, and they were attacking countries outside of China and Russia. And that's kind of all changed a little bit with what's happened. But that led to this whole economy. And we are told there are towns there where there are luxury car dealerships, there are luxury hotels and nightclubs, purely on the triple-down economics of the money that's coming from the West. And they see themselves as Robin Hood. They see themselves of, of robbing from the rich and, and injecting cash into their poor, needy, you know. so Local economy. Yeah. So a lot of them actually have convinced themselves that they're, they're doing good. Yeah, so, so I don't know if they are, you know, yeah. chaotic evil. You sound like Don Corleone, and you know, yeah. running the olive oil business. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, there's something else yeah. going on somewhere else. That, yeah, you know. yeah. Um, so that's been really, really interesting, and I think that look, being able to actually reflect back over the last couple of years and look at what's happened in the pandemic and say, well, what can we actually learn more broadly? And that's often, you know, when we when we look at the way people learn and innovate and get better at doing stuff, it's often not by following their own specific discipline, but actually looking outside their discipline, looking at the outside world. And I think that's part of what you've really brought to the table, Eric, is saying, we've had this other really big event. What can we learn from that about human behavior yeah. that informs cyber? Because it's, it, effectively the last two years have been the, you know, one of the world's biggest experiments in human behavior, yeah, manipulation yeah, and change. Yeah. What can we learn? So that's been really, really valuable. Yeah. I mean, one interesting takeaway was that, you know, I came at this thinking that COVID was this very unique opportunity to observe the world trying to influence behavior. But the irony is that it's not unique. There's another problem set out there. I'm talking about global warming, where we need to influence the community's behavior. And nobody's really even, you know, thinking about that in anything like the... Mm you know, the, the, the intensity that we've thought about COVID. Yeah. And, that, that, that's, and that, probably, that's probably that, going to change over the next few years, right? Yeah. Well, it's probably like a discussion for a whole different podcast, but it is yeah. interesting because the, the pandemic was acute. And that was probably the yeah. very big difference is that the yeah. pandemic all happened in the space of, a, you know, I remember having people over for a barbecue in the last weekend of that March. Yeah. And then all of a sudden talking about lockdowns a week later. Like it happened really, really fast. The whole thing escalated. Whereas global warming is like, meh. Seems a bit different out there today. But not that different to how it was a week, a year ago. Yeah. It's that, you know, the slow, the slow boiling frog. Yeah. I guess. Maybe with the pandemic, we saw the light at the end of the tunnel. We, we went into it thinking it was all going to be done and dusted in six months. Yeah. And then we started to hear from people who'd studied, you know, the Spanish flu and, and we're like, well, oh, this is going to be two or three years. Yeah. Um, none of us wanted to believe that, that it was going to be two years. Well, that's yeah. been fascinating to talk about, Eric. Now, we've been asking everybody through this season of the podcast to name or nominate their cybersecurity superhero. So someone who's been a, a great mentor or friend or someone who's you know offered you support in a way. And often these are people that we've never heard of that have been just incredibly influential in the in our careers. Is there someone or some people that you want to name? Yeah, there's there's lots and lots of people I think have shaped the way I, I think, and there's lots of, you know, I think about uh, Marcus Ranham and, and some of the rants I've watched him deliver. 
Uh, Marcus Rannan was is sort of considered the father of the firewall. You know, very funny, irreverent, talks a lot about things outside of uh, security and, and how they apply to us in the security world. But the person who's really shaped who I am more than anyone else is, is my current boss, Nick Ellsmore. Uh, Nick started SIFT, which became Stratsec, and I went to work. My first consulting role was in Stratsec. Uh, Nick hired me, took a big gamble on me because I wasn't a consultant. I'd come from network engineering. Um, I knew nothing about consulting. Uh, unfortunately, I sort of he threw me in the deep end and I, I was able to swim. Uh, and then, you know, after they sold Stratsec to BAE Systems and kind of what happened with that, Nick went away for a few years, served out his non-compete time, came back and formed Hyvent. And then, you know, after, after a while, he kept called me up and said, we're putting the band back together. Uh, and, and, you know, we're still working together. So Nick is my go-to guy for, I'm doing a talk, have you got any ideas? Um, I've written a talk, can you listen to me to make sure I'm not kind of completely off the mark? Um, he's, he's the most humane, you know, down-to-earth person. He's that kid at school that everyone knew that was always scheming and always coming up with sort of entrepreneurial ideas. Wasn't the kid selling cans of coke out of the yeah, locker? Was, the... Yeah, reminds me a bit like my dad. My dad was expelled from school for selling cigarettes, <laughs> you know, to the other kids. And, and Nick um, told me that when he was a kid, he used to busk um, in, in Hobart. He made a sign that said saving up for a Ferrari because he knew it was cute and that the tourists did give him money. You know, <laughs> he's just, he's always uh, thinking about that. And, and he's long past the point where he could afford to buy himself a Ferrari even and he still shops at Aldi. He's this lovely, nice uh, guy. Everyone knows him in the industry. I mean, that's my litmus test when I meet someone in the industry. If they don't know Nick, I get very, you know, that's a red flag for me. <laughs> so yeah, he, he's my kind of, my, my hero. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today, Eric. No problem. And now it's over to Beck and Mark. Thank you, Anthony. Excited to be back for another month. And busy, busy months that we seem to be flying through. We are up to our April episode already. Once again, I'm joined by the lovely Mark Carey-Smith. How are you this afternoon, Mark? I'm great. How are you, Beck? Yeah, great. Excited. Full of energy. Ready for some fun. That was another great interview that we had with Eric Pinkerton. And I know that this is an area of interest personally to you, Mark. And, you know, you love the idea of behavioural science and how that can influence cybersecurity. So I'm interested to hear your thoughts. Yeah, thanks, Beck. Yeah, look, I really like the the analogy that Eric mentioned about till pandemic defence in depth and how the, that relates to or has parallels to cybersecurity defence in depth. You know, it's something we often talk about as a fundamental principle. Uh, but it's important to take into account the the outliers of any group that mean that it can make compliance quite challenging, whether it, we we're talking about compliance with public health initiatives or measures or controls, or whether we're talking about cybersecurity controls and compliant or non-compliant behavior. So I think it's also really important to think about the language that, that we use with non-cybersecurity professionals and I think one way to really be aware of that and to generally have better insights is to have empathy for people. And that means that when we can have more empathy for people, when we we can be curious about people's motivations and perceptions and feelings around cybersecurity and cybersecurity controls, 
then we're in a better position to design and implement and manage systems that work for people rather than against them. Yeah, it gives you a connection to that person, doesn't it? You know, you sort of get on that same wavelength together. It totally does because we can sometimes be a little bit disconnected from the people that we're meant to be helping. And something that I found particularly interesting in this regard lately is a podcast I've discovered called Cyber Empathy. Simple enough title and oh. it, it look, it's in the name. That resonates, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've been really interested in the in the episodes that I've listened to in that podcast and uh, it has some really interesting insights and some conversations that's challenged me a bit in terms of my perceptions or assumptions about language and how we use language so that's been really interesting yeah it's always nice to learn and develop and, and find better ways that we can connect with the very people you know that we're frustrated with not following those directions you know there to look if there's more reasoning behind it yeah yeah and something I often talk about when I when I do training is that we don't even follow the good advice that we give ourselves you know especially in relation to things like say eating more healthy food or doing more exercise or consuming less alcohol we we want to do better in this regard and we some know of us what do we should be doing <laughs> exactly and sometimes we tell ourselves that we should be doing this or we should be doing that but we often don't so why the hell would we expect people to just do the things that we tell them to do in relation to cybersecurity, like creating better, in quotes, passwords? What's in it for them? Why would they do it? Yeah, what's if the motivator? <laughs> exactly. If they don't understand what's in it for them, then why would they do it? Yeah, no, that's a really interesting. And great to have another podcast that we can check out too. Thanks for sharing that. There's no shortage of good podcasts out there. Good problem to have. You know, obviously it's April, we're leading into conference time. <laughs> so I would really like to raise a, a couple of ideas that build on, you know, these sorts of learnings and, and the people focus in cybersecurity, we're not just our technical skills. And it's been great the last few years to see an increase in our tutorials and presentations that offer that kind of subject matter. Is there anything that you've picked out already? I've, I've just had a quick scan of our program and I know that we've got a great tutorial on imposter syndrome which I believe is booked out, not surprising. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and, and strangely enough, I managed to get a place in that oh, tutorial. <laughs> Were you first in that line? <laughs> but there's also design thinking for cybersecurity. I think that's one that you might have done last year with Ivano. I did, I did. So yes, that's a really great example of putting the, the people that we design things for in the centre of the design process. So that sort of collaboration, I think, Great, and it's nice to to get some insights and a bit of a methodology or a fairly easy to use framework around how to do that kind of thing. It's easy to say and sometimes more challenging to do. So, yeah, I was really happy with that. Yeah, that what a great shift. opportunity to learn and, and sort of develop that side of thinking and, and learn different ways to tackle the same issues. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean that's the, that's the whole point of the first two days, the the shoots. Mm -hmm. The last one I'd like to flag is also how to make better decisions in security teams. So that's a half-day session on the Wednesday, which I think would also be quite interesting to check out. And still got spaces in that one at the moment. Yeah, yeah, that, that was a very interesting... I mean, obviously, we were both part of the program committee, and that was one of those tutorial submissions where you read it and go, wow, that's really interesting and, and probably not seen very often take to consider some philosophical elements of of 
how behaviours can be influenced and particularly how, how people make decisions in an incident response context. Mm-hmm. Okay, so a few presentations in similar lines where you can sort of think about things a bit differently. One I'm really interested in is navigating incident response, the art of effective cybersecurity communication. I think communication is definitely one that I think we need to focus on more in, in cyber. So that sounds like an interesting session. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's often, it's one of those things that we often talk about, but don't necessarily examine or explore. And it, look, it, it, it sort of reminds me of the importance of conducting tabletop exercises to, to talk through a simulated cybersecurity incident. And yeah, it's the comms that often comes out in those discussions. Absolutely. Another one, oh, the InfoSec talent hiding right under your nose. So that's with Jess Dodson. So I really like that this concept of actually looking at the skills in your team and across your different teams and going, actually, I can see how your skills could match the roles that I have. So actually building up and and working on the the workforce we already have rather than always looking outside the organisation. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, we hear a lot of talk about the cybersecurity skills gap and phrases, you know, similar to that. And it's nice to see someone taking a a lateral sort of approach to making use of the staff and skills we already have. And I like the idea of empowering people to to contribute in a positive way to cybersec organisational resilience. Yes. The last one I'd like to mention is a a joint presentation. So celebrating neurodiversity, understanding and harnessing neurodiverse team members' superpowers. I think this is going to be a really interesting topic. I know that there's a lot of neurodiversity in our industry and I think it attracts certain skills within that. And I love that it's flipping that around and knowing these are actually superpowers of these people and how we're going to make the best use of them in our organisations. Yeah, there's obviously some nice parallels there between those last two presentations that you mentioned in relation to identifying and magnifying the opportunities that we already have and part of that is just being open and curious about the the nature of diversity in its broadest definition and trying to harness you know what's what people's strengths and abilities are in a way that that makes everybody's lives better yeah Great. So that's only a small portion of the program, of course. So make sure you check out the conference website for all the details. You'll find abstract and speaker details on there. Thursday and Friday, attend any of the sessions, but the tutorials you do need to pre-register for, and some of them have booked out, like your very elusive imposter syndrome. (laughs) I do love that we do a lot in the people side, just generally at the conference outside of program. So wanting to flag that we have got Dr. Carla, the psychologist back for counseling sessions. So anonymous sessions, Grab a post-it note from near the registration desk with the timing and we'll give you directions on where she is doing those sessions. As well as a careers village with people sex. So we'll have Ricky and one of his colleagues giving one-on-one career advice, information about the current job market, salary guys, you know, sort of, you know, those awkward conversations that aren't always as easy. But he will also be in a room, one-on-one anonymous sessions. So giving people that opportunity as well. Yeah, that provides, you know, a nice easy way to have a confidential chat with someone that that you may not otherwise do in an online setting so it's always good to speak to people face to face and that's one of the great things about the conference is those people connections and if you're just looking generally for a a little place to to escape to and and have some 
hands-on therapy. We're talking our Lego and lockpicking village are back again as well. They're a really great safe space if you're looking to escape for a bit, feel a bit creative, and you know, the people that we have hosting both of those activities are really supportive and great down-to-earth people as well. Yeah, they've been a long-standing supporter of the conference and it's always super popular. Yeah. yeah, so I think that's probably enough from us. I need to get back to planning this conference so we've got something to go to next month. <laughs> but thank you so much for joining me, Mark. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to this episode of Share Today, Save Tomorrow, the OzCert podcast. Thanks to our guests, Eric, and to Beck and Mark. We'll be back next month with another episode of Share Today, Save Tomorrow with a new guest and a look into the Australian cybersecurity scene. If you want to know more about OzCert, be sure to visit ozcert.org.au.